Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. And it's here on the 21st of February, uh, 1965, on Sunday afternoon, the Great Music Saturday, right here. So this is a special place, uh, that's a global space, and it's a space for both tragedy and because you're here at right. Okay, so we want you to understand and let people know that what this place represents. Um, as we start, I would first of all want to thank Leslie Gist of Gist of Freedom. Where's Leslie? Leslie? Where's Leslie? Leslie in the back there. One of the things that we do is we work with great people and great organizations to fund for events like this. And Leslie and the organization that brought this program here to work with us. Very thankful for this relationship and we look forward to moving forward with this. I also want to mention also uh, Star of the Evening, uh, the acclaimed filmmaker Sam, Sam Pollard. And I also want very, very important, I want you to introduce the daughters of Malcolm X and Dr. Ben Shabazz. It's the Yaka Shabazz and Malak Shabazz. Right over there in booth number four. 
And without further ado, I'd like to introduce the Yakushibar. Thank you, Mark. Mark is our executive director. We have we opened up the center a few years after my mother passed away. Um, and so we're really fortunate right now to have Mark Carden as our uh, executive director. He's been doing a great job, so let's please give him a round of applause. And of course, in the last Wendy, the Gluten Sisters is here in the house. And so Black, uh, I know Mark already said something, but stand up again. <laughs> very briefly about this place. Um, we are very blessed uh, that our mother, that she was able to turn tragedy into triumph because it was right here where my father was martyred, where he was brutally, politically assassinated, um, where he was killed, and it was very difficult for our mother to ever talk about where he was buried, uh, to talk about anything that reminded her of that day, February 21st, 1965. And so, I'm very happy that I came here with her, and, and she really lit up when she came in here. She spoke about Daniel Galvez doing this incredible mural. She picked out important uh, uh, moments in my father's in, in my father's life that she wanted to picture on the wall. Uh, she was extremely meticulous. She was a perfectionist. She wanted you to do it right, keep doing it until you got it right. And um, you know, one of the things that I usually share that really speaks to the core of who Dr. Betty Shabazz is, uh, she was so loving, so caring, um, very protective of her family and you know her daughters and her husband. Uh, when uh, Daniel Galvez did the the portion there, where you see my mother pointing. To where Daddy is in Africa with my uh, with me, with Kabila and Akula, she said, You must put a bassinet on the floor because that was my fourth baby, the male to feel like that. She wanted to make sure that the crescent and the star were positioned uh, correctly on his ring. And even with uh, uh, Gabriel Karen with this magnificent sculpture downstairs. First, you know, everyone who does Malcolm, you know, they, they make him, you know, kind of tough and, you know, they put really nice clothes on him. And she said, well, wait a minute, my husband, he was conservative. He didn't wear Armani. He just wore a simple two-button or three-button suit. And, and God bless you, Gabriel, for just doing a magnificent job. But she was very, very happy and proud of that social downstairs. to illuminate the legacy of her husband, not for the purpose of glorifying Malcolm X, but for the purpose of empowering those who come here. And uh, so it is very important to us that we have programs uh, that tell a story, that tell a story of our history, that inspires, empowers the truth of who we are. The beginning of civilization we know began in Africa. The beginning of the first library resurrected magnificent 
a library, we were directed in Africa. So we were very learned, highly skilled uh, individuals before we were, uh, we endured the, the transatlantic, you know, the, the transatlantic slave trade, and understanding that it was the largest forced migration of a people in the history of mankind. Oftentimes when I ask young people to raise their hand, who heard of the uh, the European modern-day Jewish Holocaust, everyone raises their hands, and it's, it's amazing. And then when I ask them, how many of you heard of the African Holocaust, no one raises their hands. So it says that we have to do our job, all of us who are old enough and smart enough and all those great things, we have to make sure that we preserve, document, research, and all those things uh, when we leave. And that we also are teaching our young people. Okay. Now it is. I am absolutely honored to introduce Sam Puller. The filmmaker, an Oscar nominee. Okay. So. Without further ado, I introduce Sam Pollard.
But you know, this is the film that should be shown everywhere. I've shown it in Schomburg, I've shown it at Schomburg. Any place you want to show the film, any school, for anybody, young or old, I will take the film to be shown. It's an important film. And the legacy of this film is the industrial prison complex. Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, comes out of what this book is all about. You know, there's a legacy there. So please, watch this film. Hopefully, hopefully it'll open your eyes, make you think, make you want to go do your own research. Thank you very much.
to a lot of things that we need to think about regarding our current situation as far as stopping prison. We need to think about what it means to limit a young man who may have been convicted for possession from going to college. And the idea that unemployment being as high as it currently is, that we are basically creating a similar system for our young people because there is no opportunities for them when they are undereducated and over um, incarcerated. Thank you. I think you just covered the content of the entire panel. <laughs> Thank you all so much for the opportunity to come out and speak with all of you. It's uh, extraordinary event on sacred ground, and it's, it's a miracle, really, that we have this opportunity, especially in the shadow of what we've just seen in the film. Um, I want to be relatively brief because I am desperate to hear from all of you about your reactions and your questions, and that will drive the most productive conversation from my perspective uh, this evening. First, I want to say uh, congratulations to the filmmakers and the hosts this evening, the Shabazz family, and the executive directors and staff for hosting uh, Slavery by Another Name. Uh, this was a very important lesson, kind of a revelation of the last decade that we've begun to realize just how deeply slavery persisted in the United States over the 20th century, that it really has not been uprooted and eradicated, that the prison industrial complex continues to enslave millions of people in this country and deny equality of opportunity to far too many. What I want to go back to, though, a possible sequel or suggestion for how we can grapple with the truth in more forceful terms is basically the idea that for 50 years prior, the Civil War. This exact same system existed here in New York City. It existed in New Jersey. It existed in Connecticut, in Delaware, Ohio, and Indiana. They began to, at the state legislative level, abolish slavery between 1776 and 1790. But as soon as slavery was abolished in the North, these states immediately put restrictions on the African-American population, what kind of jobs they could work, where they could travel, how they could be placed in prison and re-enslaved, how their children could be held in bondage. The last slave in New Jersey was freed by the 13th Amendment in 1865. This is not just a Southern narrative. And so this story of how the South came to study the North and then emulate and expand on the policies of maintaining slavery needs to be told. The second part of what I wanted to say to you all this evening is the same lesson about how we take away a lesson for the future. And my center has really worked for the last 20 years developing a way to overcome the way wealth was denied to our parents and our grandparents and our ancestors. How do we go from a system and a society that's built on financing inequality and making poverty permanent for millions of people, not just African Americans, not just people of African descent, but thousands of European immigrants, thousands of people from Asia and Latin America, all held within a global system presently 
where their consumer dollars are the ways that they are enslaved, that they are shown not to own property or begin new enterprises. The work that we're doing in New Jersey and gone about for the last two or three years is taking people who save $50 a month, $100 a month, $200 a month, and turning that into new enterprises that generate quarter million dollars, half a million dollars, three million dollars annually. And then once we get to that point, how do we then begin to compete in terms of global finance on the billion dollar scale? That's the only way we change this world. We need to look at this film, we need to engage this history, know the lessons so that we can build a more just and fair world economy. We are the only people with this knowledge to be able to accomplish this. If we stand to the side, if we don't take the challenge, you can guarantee that inequality will persist and get worse for our children and our grandchildren. Uh, Mr. Ford, you have a pretty unique perspective uh, on this matter, especially the industrial prison complex being a criminal defense attorney. Uh, you work with cases, I'm sure, on a daily basis of people of African descent, especially young people who are incarcerated and dealing with uh, being, you know, jailed for little itty bitty things. Uh, talk about the the current state of slavery in our time now. Certainly, I would be happy to. First of all, I just want to say that I've seen this documentary three times, and based on that, I want to change my description from the angriest black man in America to the angriest black man on the planet, because every time I see this, I become more and more furious. James Baldwin says to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. And that is so true, and every time I see and hear about things like what was talked about in this documentary, I become more and more enraged. And let me just respond very quickly to uh, Roy's question. I'm a criminal defense attorney in Philadelphia, and the laws in Pennsylvania are similar to the laws throughout the country. There's something called DFJ, something called certification. And what they mean is this. For certification, if you're 14 years old, if you're accused of a felony, and if the court system determines they can't control you, you go straight to the adult court. Wow. That's certification. You're certified as an adult from age 14. They have a relatively new thing in Pennsylvania, and again, this is consistent throughout the country called DFJ, Direct File Juvenile. In this case, if you're accused of certain crimes, and you're 15 years old, and it's alleged that you had a weapon or prior conviction, you go straight to the adult system. Think about that. These are 14 and 15 year old boys being thrown to the wolves as serious criminals. So people often say the more things change, the more they stay the same. I say the more things change, the more they get worse because that's exactly how things go. Let me just wrap this up because I've never met a microphone I didn't love. So I want to make sure that there's not too much love making here for the next 40 or 30 minutes we have a great panel. Let me just say this. When we see documentaries like what we saw, for me the answer is either revenge or reparation. Absolutely. Revenge or reparation. You just can't see something like Indignation and go home and watch the basketball game. Yep. Thank you.
Ms. Goldson, there is an underlying theme here, and that is the lack of education that exists uh, currently in our particularly public school system to teach young people about the history and the knowledge that we saw in the film. Why is there a continual struggle to uh, have this a part of curriculum all across the country? And talk about the work you're doing to combat that. People decide they don't like the story told. Um, education is institutional. And um, the work we've been able to do in New Jersey is really demystify the idea that history belongs in those powerful people that America has deemed should be able to tell a story. Um, New Jersey was groundbreaking in the fact that 10 years ago it decided that it would um, equalize the playing field that it would allow multitude of voices to be represented in our history, that we would decide that our K-12 curriculum initiative would allow African-American history, and thus open the door for us to be able to bring in many, many multicultural stories. It's a paradigm that is taught every day, not just in Black History Month, not just in African-American history courses, but standardized and institutionalized in the K-12 social studies context standards. Um, and in that, it has allowed our office um, to sort of monitor, um, to cajole, um, to force when we've had to. Many districts, from Warren County to North, to have to embrace these kind of stories, to have to have these kind of voices represented, and to allow us to really expose children to this little known history. We have a misnomer that slavery ended with the Civil War. Um, but what I'd like to do, even regarding the primary sources, is I, you know, you lay them out there sometimes. And if you can lay out the 14th Amendment, you can lay out the 13th Amendment, and you can start talking about the first state black codes that are next, that are next 13 days later, that begin to criminalize life. The Bayless Code, 13 days from the 13th Amendment. The history speaks for itself. What becomes important is that we begin to educate children so that they really understand what the legacies are. And so that's the work that we're trying to do in New Jersey, bringing these stories to life, letting these people's voices begin to speak so that we can understand contemporarily where we are and what the situation is in. Mr. Wise. standpoint, if you can sort of uh, put all of this into context, you have the political group talk, the educational uh, perspective, what can people on the ground do uh, if they're in communities that don't have an on-the-ground commission, for example? People on the ground want to uh, really become aware of what's going on. Where, where we sit in this whole prison industrial complex, you know, we're the engine, uh, we're the population that gets this done. We have, uh, we're, we're a resource. It's uh, no, it's not anything mystical or hard to believe why our kids are being scooped up or stopped at prison. I mean, the prison complex, which is becoming more and more privatized, our kids going into prison. Principally, we've been making money for a lot of localities that aren't here, uh, not just as far as being supplying those workers with a prison industry, all right, but also supplying them with uh, representation because uh, for a long time, and, 
and it's starting to change now. Uh, the prison population was counted as part of their population as far as the census count. All right, so they got a greater representation than we did, and and those 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 children go off the bus. We have to look at uh, the prison uh, industry now, and we have to look at our part in and start identifying some things. Uh, there are a couple of segments of this. You know, there's the direct uh, prison products, labor uh, companies that, that have products made in prison, and then there are the companies like Walmart and McDonald's that pay suppliers who have products made in prison. All right, so you go into Walmart, you're looking at the uniforms or you're looking at the plastic utensils. They've been probably made by a prisoner. You go into McDonald's, you go into Walmart, here's what happens. Uh, the products that are brought back as far as uh, the returns, uh, the overstock items, all of that has to be liquidated. Walmart has some policy where uh, they, they say that they don't use prison labor directly, right? But these, uh, these uh, liquidators come in and they purchase these, these, these cancel products from Walmart and then they take them to prisons and they have them, uh, uh, the, the manufacturing identity is taken off of them and they're put back into the market and so at a very low rate. So Walmart is is sending uh, or is making money from the liquidation. All right, but but that that what they are receiving is actually subsidized by us because the prisons are are operating as factories, taxpayers pay for them. You know, we're sending people into them, and they're getting cents on the dollar. And they, they say under I mean, this guy that, you know, you're giving these prisoners uh, uh, marketable skills. Well, let a prisoner walk out of the prison and go to the same place, you know, show up at the HR place of the, of the corporation that employed them in prison and see what happens. So uh, somebody says about this complex, we, when we see officers push, pushing our kids up against the wall pervasively, you know, this isn't some mystic coincidence, all right? But we see a mayor like Bloomberg talking about how stopping Chris stops crimes, all right? And he goes around the country and he talks about what he's doing about gun, guns, right? But he knows that these guns are sold in gun shows in Alabama, Virginia, or whatever, and they aren't made in Harlem. And here you have the island of Manhattan is got like the surrounded by you can only get in on a bridge or a tunnel. He doesn't show off the flow of guns into Manhattan. He waits until they get him. And, they, and our kids wound up in this system. All right? You see very little as far as uh, the gun sales or the, or the gun traffic before it gets to the opera. And you see everybody swamping down uh, you know, when, when, when there's a kid walking around and they're not finding nuts, right? But they're finding things like marijuana, stuff like that, no level things to put us into system. So we have to be very conscious of this. As an activist, and I'm going to close real quick, we have to always be looking for things that are going to make change. 
For me, we have to readily identify these Christian products. And uh, I would move that uh, we, we start, as one of the things that we're going to be doing and looking at a, a, a plethora of things, we need to have a push to have printed products labeled as printed products. You know how I just say made in America? Well, if it's made in prison, I'll say made in prison. Right, and we start looking at those things and making conscious decisions about how we spend we start choking off the money. All right, we may not get there as far as as uh, totally change the system, but if you watch who springs first, and they're guilty, they're guilty. So we're gonna have to do some things uh, with the URIs to change the situation. enjoyed the, uh, the film and the presentation. i like to say it still goes on today. Uh, Senator Eric Adams from Brooklyn, he had a program with the DA Hines in Brooklyn. If you get caught smoking a cigarette on the subway, urinating, jumping the turns down, you will be issued a summons. If you don't report for that court date, they will issue you a warrant so you will have a criminal record. What is happening, when you go to these courts, you either going to do five days community service or 30 days in jail. When you do the five days community service, you are doing labor. You are cleaning up a toilet at the court. You are cleaning up the New York City Parks Department. So it hasn't went away. They, it's dressed up, but it has not went away. It is still here. You got to wake up. When you people are going to work in the morning, when you see a, a, a group of men with the orange vests on, they are being worked just like they was in 1908. We as black people, we spend too much money for Harlem not to own something in Malcolm X's name. We can own something on 120. If we really love Malcolm X, just put our money where our mouth is. There's too much rappers out there with money. There's football players out there with money. There's basketball players out there with money. Okay. You know, right, there's a lot of things we can do. Okay, my name is Carl Dick. What I want to say is, one of the historians in this film said that it would take a lot of hard work to uproot the way that they were incarcerating black people back then. Well, let me update it and take it a little farther. It will take revolution, nothing less, to uproot the way that they mistreat, abuse, and oppress black people. It's built into the fabric of the system. And on that tip, I want to bring up two things. The first is that a film titled B.A. Speaks, Revolution, Nothing Less, going to be premiered in New York, probably in Harlem, mid-March. Something you want to know about, check me out, I'm going to be here. The other thing is on the activist tip, February 26th is one year since the vigilante murder of Trayvon Martin. Last year, a lot of us said we are all Trayvon. Well, we better all still be Trayvon because the only reason there's a case is because we took to the street. And if we don't keep acting, they will let the killer walk just like the cops did that night 
but also if we do act, we're not only acting for justice there, we are saying no more to the criminalization of our youth, no more to that bullseye that they got on our kids' back. And that's a statement that I think we all need to be part of making. I got material on both of these, see me about it. How you doing? My name is Tyrone Nero. I just, um, first I, I think I need to uh, note that I'm, I'm very blessed and pleased that in, in my life someone picked me out of a crew of young black men that was possibly going to be in trouble and, and said you have potential. And, you know, the first time I ever read the autobiography of Malcolm X, it was given to me by Ilyasa Shabazz. She's been my mentor for more than 20-something years. Where I am right now, if it wasn't for Ayasa. Uh, right now I'm in Columbia University working on a master's degree. My, my third master's degree, <laughs> she told me to hurry up and make it a doctorate, but I have a plan for that. Part of it is, I think, policy backed by, and this is my reaction to the movie, Policy is stated that this is the rule and these are how things are going to happen. And then you can have the law that makes these things up. And what happens, I feel like young black people, is folks don't understand the policy and they only abide by the law because of the consequences. And I think that what has to happen is there needs to be communication that policy is wrong. And that's where we, we really lose it because we don't understand the rigmarole, as my grandmother would have said. We don't understand all these different words and the numbers because statistics are crap. That just justifies to put a whole bunch of cops in bedside, a whole bunch of cops in your neighborhood where you get more tickets, you get more occurrences with the law. And I think that's where we have to start also by having micro interactions with young people and, and saying, let's give them enlightenment. And you don't get that with having big ideas and big dreams because you don't talk to Lil Ray Ray and you don't talk to Shanika that way. They don't understand sometimes. They need really someone with a positive light to look at them and say, you really matter. And I'm going to summarize that and say thank you, Ayasa, because I do feel like I'm having a question. Good evening. My name is Janie Farlin. And no way am I that eloquent as far as what they said, but um, I'm saying on behalf of those who are enslaved as far as with the drug thing. Um, I did drugs for 20 years, and I'm an ex-crack addict, uh, five years. And the reason why I'm responding to this film is that when they talk about slavery, um, I was enslaved mentally. And what I want to say, there was a point where I couldn't talk, and I was really in the streets. My family still going through that. They're enslaved mentally. And I only met one person, I can't mention their name, uh, but I'll just call them T-Mac. I met one person at a church who, when I was in bondage with um, drugs and mentally could not cope, they were able to speak to me where I was. My family does not believe in education. They don't believe in college. They don't believe in anything. My, my mom does not believe in any of that. I graduated St. John's University of Bachelors and I'm attending Hofstra University. And my point is with this film, uh, I didn't know anything about this. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm 51 years old. I knew nothing about this. I, I heard, I heard, and I'm saddened by it. And my tears, it, it's not that, you know, I'm very emotional, but the fact is, I cannot believe this thing happened. So it's, it's not only education, obviously. Our family has to talk to us about this. 
Um, my, my neighbors here, all of you have to talk to me about this. I know nothing about that. So my question basically is, I don't know where to start. And I, I feel sort of embarrassed because I have a degree at, at St. John's. I have a degree, I'm going for another degree, but I know nothing about this. And again, I'm 51 years old, so I'm asking you, what do I do to try to get this started? Good work. Yes. which leads me to the concern that I didn't know about it. I understand that it was on public TV, it was on a very variety of channels, and I'm wondering how many other people sitting in this room, it's the first time that they may have seen this. And if it's a lot of people, that should pose a strong concern if it's their first time seeing it. So my question is, what can be done to get this movie and perhaps complementary materials to go along with it to be in every library in the United States and every school system in the United States. Well, I think that's the whole purpose of this film. Um, I think with regard to the reality of the majority of what African history is in this country, most people are unaware. Um, this country is not invested enough in making sure that the stories have been told. Oftentimes they're problematic, sometimes they're not pretty, and we like our history in nice little neat bows. And um, history in itself, and to be honest with life, it is messy, as it should be. Um, I think what becomes most important is people need is the more awareness we have about these kinds of stories, the more we will see that people generally will want to extend this kind of knowledge. PBS did do um, a series of companion pieces that in regards to lesson plans, in regards to purpose and count, that are available for the public as a companion piece system. Um, I know uh, 
for the state of New Jersey, and it's also available for the rest of the country free of charge. As a part of our curriculum, we make these materials available. Um, and it is, as we said, it is online, it is downloadable. Um, in regards of how we strategically make sure it is done, it becomes on the part of educators. Um, when we begin to demystify these educational initiatives, we begin to really look at what we want included and the histories and the people we want included. We need to make sure that these are on the table. You know, we have this great big move for the Common Core Standards. We have all these states that have adopted this whole ideology, but what we're not talking about is the content. We're talking about skills, we're talking about testing, we're talking about all these things, but what becomes most important is if we're going to talk about whether or not these things are included, we must begin to talk about the real demystification and a real extent of the content that we're including for our kids. Because if we do not, we're going to look up and we're 40 years down the road and we're having the same exact conversation. The stories are not being told. And at this point, there's too much wealth of material and wealth of opportunities that are out there where the stories are out there that we must make our states, our kids, adopt these stories and understand the historical significance that we have all played in regards to the American story. Uh, Stephanie, before you pass the mic, can you, is there a formal process by which someone can petition uh, the local education body to include this in the curriculum? Well, I can speak from Jersey and I speak from York as well. Um, the Amistad law is in both states. Now the differential between New Jersey and New York is, is that um, when New Jersey instituted the Amistad law, we understood that it was a state mandate that needed to be funded, that needed to have a staff, and needed to have someone to oversee, not just the board of commissioners. Um, so New Jersey had a board of commissioners, but I was also hired to actually run the mandate. New York has a board of commissioners, and there's nobody that's actually able to run the mandate. So when it's a law that's on the books in New York, but no one has decided what it will look like, the pragmatics of it, how it will apply, what curriculum materials. I've been to New York many times with the Department of Education. They've asked many questions, but the actual institution of it has not transformed. New York has its own challenges. We have many counties that don't want to adopt the policy, they don't want to understand what it means, they do not understand what the pragmatics are, they say it can translate it to a human program, etc. What I will say is, is that um, in, in either state, and there's now seven of them in the country that have asked me to come because they have this law, what I always say, because I myself am a parent and a school board member, and I know for sure that until you see material come home from your own children, you know that there is not going to shift and change in the curriculum. So the most powerful means and modality for any of to be pushed is parental involvement, community involvement. When our community demands that this is what is taught, the school must listen. Thank you. My name is Reggie Bratton. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I'm a 55-year-old father of four boys and two grandsons. Uh, my question to the panel is this. I grew up in a project in Brooklyn. Um, and so for the last 10, 15 years, we would try to, with this uh, criminal system of incarcerating so many of our youth, we had a 10-point system that we would put on a sheet of paper and try to let the parents and the children know what to do 
for preventive measures to not get into prison. And if you got there, this is what you could do to have to expedite your process of getting out. Can the panel answer or give me some more tips that I can increase this list that I can give out to the parents of children who are in school because we have students in school now. I could uh, hand this out to the churches. Uh, just I'm going to give some give, give you some more tips. Uh, if you guys can hold on to that question and answer it in one second, I'm going to try to get another question in. Hello, my name is Billy Zuniga, and um, I'm honored to be here with you guys tonight. Um, my question is, uh, when uh, when the drug era came into to New York City, uh, the crack and cocaine era. I'm sorry. We passed, they passed Rockefeller laws, and those laws target our community. Now we're talking about gun laws, and I'm all to stop the violence and guns. But how certain are we that when these gun laws are passed, then are here again to target our community? Because we can rally for Trayvon Martin, and I'm all for Trayvon Martin, but we can't rally for many issues that we have in our community. So as a panel, what are, what are your suggestions? Uh, I can say you uh, there's one thing, especially with the Bloomberg Fund, there's one thing to concentrate on uh, the, the companies and the stores and the gun shows uh, that uh, where the guns are, are sold and then they're transported to New York. So if you know if you know where people are buying guns, you know you know they're coming into New York and you're not stopping them before they come to New York. You have a different agenda, and to wait until the community is saturated with guns, and then under this roof, search every guy, you know, everybody in the community, you know, that's, that's a different agenda, you know, and, and the mayor may be talking about he's anti-gun and everything else, but with the stop of prison, he can't justify this, and it's putting a lot of people into the system. So, uh, we, we, we talk about gun laws, all right, and what's being changed now, the, the emphasis is on automatic weapons, and it's also on uh, background checks, which I don't think background checks are a bad idea. But going back to a couple of, uh, quickly, a couple of uh, questions before, um, one of the things that we can do is stop being so damn afraid about young people. You know, we're walking right past them every day. We're not saying hello. You know, and we got a community of kids that we see as hostile and alienated. And, and, and what's, what's the mystery about why that is? All right. So you know, you can see from the example uh, that the man is uh, talking about. He's going to Columbia. He's, he's got a couple of masters. He's working on his doctorate. Somebody engaged him. Somebody at some point did not wait. So it was a more compelling circumstance. They said hello and started a conversation with any turn of around. So some of the things that we can do are very, 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 very small, but important. You know, I was asking the other panel as both, I guess, artists and historians. And I think a lot of times, you know, vision that can't be contained. Because when you think about outrage, we often operate from a point of outrage and anger. But what happens when it dies down? If we just wait for the next cause. So again, I think that it's important that we do take a more positive um, and active process in how information is disseminated throughout our community and who the work.
Hello, my name is Mary Kemp. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm a member of a CAC, a Vincianca facility. And every we meet once a month, and I'll not mention before we have our meetings, we honor our ancestors by yelling out their names. And we are often yelling out Mathematics' name. And such as Fanny Lou Hamer and all the people, Dr. Leon Sullivan, we give them honors once a month before we start our meetings. And I think that's to help the young people to keep their memories alive. And uh, I just want to say that uh, I, the film that I saw, it reminds me of something that went on this week in California. Um, this, I did not hold, uh, I don't know what he did, but no one's talking about the letter that he left back, and I think that should be in the discussion. Hi, good evening. My name is um, Yvonne Hunter, and I just want to say that um, I enjoyed this, this whole event. It was just really amazing and enlightening. And um, I'm involved in the community, but I would like to know, being that we're discussing, you know, how our children are being affected by a lack of education and, and knowing the history, how can we, um, like, how it, what I want to know is, would it be more events like this, not just for Black History Month, but like every month more often, so that we can get, so we can get kids in our community to come out, get the parents involved, so their children will know their history? And, and what resources are available where I could do my research and, and inform other people, you know, so that our children will be informed as to know who their his, what their history is. Um, good evening. Um, thank you. Um, my name is uh, Sister Terry Wisdom, and um, I'm the treasurer of the Hamilton Heights Homeowners Association and group of homeowners in Hamilton Heights. Um, mostly African American and mostly elders. And we came, we brought a block of tickets, and we also um, bought some books. But I think that this is very important, and um, my question is twofold. One, how can we dramatize um, these events that have happened to us and incorporate the young people? Because most of the young people, and I have my granddaughter here who's 13, who's part of the Blue Nile Passage into Rights program, without opinion, but they're really not feeling it. Like we lived it, we had a passion, we were exposed to it, but because of media and all the other things, they kind of think that's something that happened, but it really didn't, they can't feel it. You know, they see it, but they really can't feel it. And I kind of feel like if we really don't dramatize it, like at one point, um, Imamu Baraka had, or somebody, I don't know if it was his, but it was called slave ship. And you actually were in that ship, and you actually felt it. So I think, unless we can really dramatize, because this was information, but to young people, they got to really feel the connection, and that spirit has to be woken up. The other twofold is, like, how can we really get in the prison system and know and see what is going on? I have a family member, a close family member, who just came out after five years. Three of those years, he spent 23 hours on lockdown. This is in Bergen County. There are 900 prisoners, and 200 of them are undocumented aliens. This isn't happened since. They have created no crime except to be here. 
and those are the most depressed ones, and they don't know when they are coming home. It's across the bridge, and unless you got somebody inside, and you kind of go, fortunately, they had some parents or family meetings, and that's how you find that out. They have two psychiatric social workers for 900 prisoners. So the question is, how can we get in there, hands-on, really see what's going on, and even if you can't do something, at least this information, I'm putting it out in a group here, and I'm sure most people don't know that in Bergen County, there's 200 undocumented aliens. And they're not all Mexican. They're Haitian, and then once they do get out, they send them back to their country where they might not speak the language and don't know nothing about it. So then they're in another kind of world. Okay. So that's my question. Yeah, Michael Ford is going to wrap up with answering your question and the other question about the case in California, but I do want to get the two questions, especially the one from the young fellow back there. Do you have a question quickly? Um, I don't have a question, but I would like to everybody. My name is Charlotte Bushman Bond. I came here tonight as a parent and as an educator. And in questions to what Ms. Wilson was saying about the education of our children today, I chose two years ago to homeschool my child because I felt that the only way he was going to know about black history, the culture of our people, is by visiting him firsthand. The lack of it in schools is not being taught. I see that firsthand every day when I go to work. I've seen it in private schools as well as in public schools. And this was my choice to do this, and that's why he's here tonight, because I felt this is how he's going to learn history by traveling to different places and seeing it firsthand. Thank you.
Thank you all.